friends, and welcome to another episode of How To Wrestling, the world's first wrestling podcast detailing how to wrestling, how to get interesting, how to understand wrestling, and goodness knows maybe even how to enjoy wrestling. And ladies and gentlemen, you all know my name is Kevin Mann, and I stand here as the advocate for the Inquisitor Incarnate, the Beast. I don't want to call you a beast. The beauty, Joanna oh, Graham. I actually would rather the beast. The beast! It's more fearsome than the beauty. I'm not going to lie, earlier when I was in the loo, I had this whole thing in my head. It's like, I could just go on and on and on and be likening Joe to Brock Lesnar, but you share so few traits with him. How dare you? <laughs> my girlfriend is not a man. My girlfriend is a beast! <laughs> it doesn't work. It just makes us sound strange and peculiar. Like a really odd relationship we've got there. Not not entirely like the Heyman and Brock Lesnar. Lesnar relationship, but there's equal amounts of love here, obviously. I would equate us more to Heyman and Ryback. Oh, absolutely. You know, I can call you my Joanna, or you can call me my Kev back. A little yeah. kiss on the we cheek. We look cute when we kiss, yeah. You know, I, I always insist that Joe kisses me while I'm sitting on a wheelchair, slowly losing my mind. Uh, tonight's episode is a very special one indeed. Probably one of my favourite, you know, characters in wrestling and someone who I've consistently loved since I first saw him way back when all the way through to the modern product and this is someone who Joe you would have seen quite early on when you started watching of course we're talking today about Paul Heyman the creator of ECW the advocate for Brock Lesnar and many other hats he's worn along the way in wrestling many of which we found out about here tonight but he was one of the first people you saw in, in wrestling he was the first person I saw in modern wrestling so as in like the actual wrestling full stop the first thing you saw was no no not not wrestling full stop but modern iteration of wrestling bearing in mind when i started watching wrestling two or more years ago i started off with like mick foley attitude era kind of wrestling yeah and it wasn't until i don't know a couple months after that that i actually found out even how to watch the current show it's really (laughs) hard to find when you've no idea where to look you got a network subscription no this is before (laughs) the days of the network even with the network subscription (laughs) so yeah no i ended up live streaming illegally shh don't tell anyone um one of the pay-per-views i forget which one with sam and dan and my first memory of that show was paul Heyman with brock lesnar talking for 20 full minutes doing this probably which was an awesome promo if you were aware of what else was going on in the show and the storyline but meant nothing to me i had no idea what was going on i was so confused how is this wrestling i've always thought that Heyman is kind of like a character that many people would assume is in wrestling the kind of because when you would have seen Heyman, it would have been, you know, him being the, the guy talking up the big, scary wrestler. He's kind of a slime ball. He's got loads of words that people hate him. He hates the fans, that kind of a thing. Heyman, in many ways, is kind of like an obvious wrestling villain. But when you first saw him, did you buy him as being this, like, prick or this kind of hype man or anything? I hated him, but probably not for the reason that you're meant to hate him. <laughs> Why did you hate him? I then? hated him because he was taking up 20 minutes talking <laughs> when I had clearly tuned in to see some actual wrestling. That's interesting, because like, when you first started watching then, were you kind of annoyed when you saw people coming out talking then? Were you like, hey, here's the wrestling, I want to, I want to see the wrestling, or... You know, was the talking stuff always kind of dull? Or? I think it was just especially an annoyance for me at that point because I was trying so hard to educate myself on wrestling. Yeah. So it seemed counterintuitive for me to, to tune in just to watch promos. I, I, I wanted to see the show. I wanted the wrestling itself. But of course now, 
I love Paul Heyman. I love his promos and I love promos in general. How soon, like, from you watching then, did you start to realise that, you know, that Heyman was maybe not just a guy there to annoy you and he was maybe a guy who was offering a little something different on the wrestling show? It, I'd say it took me a long, quite a long time to realise how special he was. <laughs> Because when, when Paul Heyman is the first guy you see on the modern show, you go, oh, well, the, this must be the standard. And you don't expect, you don't realise, I don't think, how poor some of the mic skills are, <laughs> the people involved with a show that is so, you know, it's on television. Yeah. You've got to be good. And yet it's, it's a skill so many people lack. So obviously you knew that Heyman was a manager for Brock Lesnar. And we talked about that a bit on, on how to Lesnar. But what other things did you know about Heyman? Other than the fact that he was the guy who was talking a fair bit on behalf of this very scary blonde boy. So I knew he was somehow involved with another wrestling show. Yeah. Because... If you exist in the internet wrestling community long enough, of course, you'll you'll come across Paul Heyman and ECW. He's one of those guys that a lot of wrestlers talk about as being a huge influence on their career and on the wrestling industry in general. Mm. He, he just pops up everywhere. Yeah. So I knew he was like an integral part, but I didn't really understand how until later down the line. So you knew that he was like an important fellow kind of on the camera, but also in a bigger sense. Yeah, I mean, I think what I assumed was he probably came from a similar background as Vince McMahon. In yeah. that he, you know, he's probably his family were involved in wrestling maybe because it's a lot of, you know, families with wrestling, their kids get into it. They end up, you know, that's how they're so good. So I just, yeah, I think I just assumed that's how he got into it. I had no idea... <laughs> any of his whole backstory or anything it just i just i think I, I just assumed he was he was a businessman who was raised in wrestling so he was a kind of bred for the business yeah almost. exactly yeah because yeah. he seems so yeah he's he so, seems at home in wrestling I he think. does yeah. yeah i think it's really interesting because when we first announced we were going to do this episode i was so excited because i'm like i love Heyman, i love his promos i love his commentary i love him being a manager and i had a big long list of all these promos i wanted to show joe we showed joe all these promos and then i kind of realized Almost the most interesting thing about him is his backstory and how he came from pretty much diddly squash and worked his way to being this kind of figure in wrestling. Because he is definitely as important as you as you assume he is from the offset. So we decided to watch My Name is Paul Heyman, which is the documentary that WWE did on him. Now, always, if you're watching a documentary that WWE have done on a certain topic, always bear in mind that there's certain kind of political pinches of salt that need to be taken, let's just say. Obviously, the history is written by the winners, so anytime WWE are talking about a company that's went out of business, or, you know, someone who's influential outside of wrestling, if you're ever going to watch anything on the network like that, do bear in mind that they do have their own version of events. That being said, I think this documentary that we watched was really, really good, because they did talk to a lot of people, both in and out of the company, and they talked to people who liked Paul quite a lot, they also talked to people who maybe thought that Paul Heyman was a little bit of a scumbag. Yeah, but the way they talked to those people is very clearly like, don't say too many bad ah, things. Ah, it's his DVD now. Jerry Lawler, come on now. Come on. <laughs> so had you heard, like, before we watched this documentary mm. about Heyman being, like, a bit greasy, to borrow a, a Sunnyvale reference... The more I hear about him, the more greasiness emerges to the surface, I think. I don't think I heard anything about him being dodgy for, I don't know, a few months at least into watching wrestling. And it wasn't until I learned a bit more about other wrestlers talking about mm. him that every so often someone would be like, oh, he's like really, he's a, he's a very shrewd businessman. Mm. Um, sometimes 
to the detriment of the talent. Businessman and giant inverted commas there, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I think as well, there's a little bit of an unfair, and I imagine we'll go into this in more detail as we go through, but a lot of people, I think, think of him as being greedy. Yeah. Which I'm not sure I think that's fair or not. It's, it's an interesting subject, really. Anytime you are looking at a wrestler or a personality in wrestling who has some sort of history of remote dodginess, yeah. and then that person has used that as part of a character in a wrestling storyline, then it's very easy to cultivate this negative opinion. It's happened with Vince, it's happened with Eric Bischoff, it's happened with Paul Heyman, it's happened with loads of guys who've gotten like a reputation as being, oh, this person is so-and-so. And And then their character becomes, like Brock Lesnar, you know, he's a bit dangerous. His character is, he's dangerous. So people are like, oh, he's fucking dangerous, you know? I think it's a really interesting dynamic and especially the position that Paul Heyman is in, which again is, is similar to like Vince in that he has that sort of character, the wrestling character, which is based and inspired by his real life self, but also it's like business minded. So there is the whole blur between kayfabe and in real life. And he probably is a bit of a dickhead, but also he has for his entire career pretty much been a heel. Yeah. Like Vince. So when you think you've spent your entire career and it's so closely linked to your integral, you know, human character, it's, it's going to be so hard to know where yeah, the line where is that, drawn. Yeah, where that line is drawn. I think the first and the most uh, interesting about this was Paul didn't come from a wrestling dynasty. Uh, the, the Heyman clan was not, unfortunately. House Heyman doesn't exist. Although I'm not <laughs> trying to think now what their words might be. Well, or sigil. Extreme! <laughs> will just be there. And their sigil is just Paul Heyman going, Brock Lesnar, really think... intensely close. <laughs> the sigil of the Heyman house would be a mouth, I think. <laughs> or a microphone, yes. maybe, or something like that. <laughs> or one of those uh, weird backstage passes that he's always wearing. A mobile phone. He described himself as being the biggest disappointment of his mother's life. <laughs> now, did you know that Paul Heyman was uh, was Jewish and was from a Jewish family? Like, There's I not mean, many I, Jewish people in wrestling. I was aware of it before we did this episode, but it's not something that I knew from the get-go. I think I've known for about a year. Yeah. That he was Jewish. Only because you told me one day. And I thought it was really interesting. And I had absolutely no idea until we watched this documentary that his mother was a Holocaust survivor. Yeah. Because that is mind-blowing to me that there are people Paul Heyman's age whose parents were in the Holocaust. That, that is just so shocking to it me. It is crazy. She was a survivor of Auschwitz. Yeah. And like, I didn't bring up the fact him being Jewish is like kind of like, oh, hey, he's he's Jewish, so therefore that defines him. It was more from the point of because of his mother being a survivor, um, he did really, a number of times this documentary and throughout his career, it's been pointed, that's one of the real things that drives him. Yeah. Because he does have this, I almost want to say reckless approach to life and business. I think it's like, I don't know, it's just really it's bravery in a way but i don't want to say bravery because it's not it's more like being really bold yeah. and having no fear when it comes to making really bold moves yeah. he says that he learned so much from his mum in terms of like surviving trying new things always pushing onwards like that attitude came from his mother he did say at one point like goes well you know my mother's a survivor so you know what, what's the worst that can happen yeah. to me and i was like that's an interesting way of looking at it and apparently <laughs> she would say to him all the time like come on now you know this is minor after what I've been through. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's very interesting. But he didn't say that he was like, he was a big disappointment in his mother's life. And I think the fact that, you know, he's Jewish never really comes up in wrestling that often. Other than that one time he was on Steve Austin's podcast and he tried to make some sort of joke about the silly notion that the Jews run Hollywood in Austin's uh, own words. And he was sitting there going, you know, because you're, you're Jewish. And- oh. 
you know, the, and Paul Heyman's so like, please awkward. don't say the, the Jews are in Hollywood. What? Help. Oh no, what have I said? Mm. <laughs> oh no. The definition of putting your foot into it. <laughs> hey, let me tell you something. That was just locker room talk, mm. and that's the bottom line. Because <laughs> probably the Secretary of Defense or some shit says so. <laughs> the wordplay at the start of the documentary genius revolutionary the word genius was used so much he's genius revolutionary he's too damn pushy is another one as well (laughs) lots of photos as well of like Heyman as being a cute little boy and oh, uh, a tiny little Paul Heyman. He was so small and so cute, wasn't he? <laughs> when he, he there's some pictures of him like just this tiny little boy, brave Paul Heyman with his microphone with these huge famous wrestlers. Like Bruno Sarratino and he's like fucking fourteen. And there. he looks absolutely nonplussed. He doesn't seem like out of place at all. He reminds me so much of Nathan Fielder. <laughs> Dumb Starbucks like <laughs> But Nathan Fielder, like, why? Because he's just, like, there with these people completely, like... Yeah, completely, like, stony face. Like, this doesn't bother me at all. Like, I bet Paul Heyman would find (laughs) the whole interviewing people and pushing them to the point of awkwardness without breaking that awkward silence. No problem. He's pretty much done that for a lot of his career when he's on commentary. But I think when he was a young 14-year-old, Paul Heyman does... He's a dead ringer for for Nathan Fielder. We'll do the side-by-side for that. But as a young, industrious boy... Paul Heyman, very, very smart. He used his bar mitzvah money to set up a wrestling photo newsletter business. He bought a camera, he bought a photo lab, he got like printing stuff. I just think that's so fucking brilliant. You know, there's a few times, I don't know if this ever happened to you now, if you are going to, uh, you know, be showing your partner wrestling and get into it together, number of times when we're watching wrestling, Joe and I may look at someone and kind of go, I wouldn't mind if that boy ended up being our boy, yeah. you know? If we had a boy that was like Paul Heyman... Oh, I'd be so proud of that boy. I, I would love to have that, you know? That, yeah. What an industrious kid! What a smart little boy. I mean, I like to think that I was industrious because I saved my communion money. Mm. But it wasn't like, ah, I'll use this right away and make money. You know, you know, I just left my communion money in the credit union and forgot about it. <laughs> and then I was like, I want to go to uh, do stand-up comedy in Edinburgh. And then it was still there. Not the same thing. <laughs> I love that he started out by doing a wrestling fanzine. Oh, the Wrestling it's so Times! Cute. And yeah, the fact that he called it the Wrestling Times, which is, that is genius. Yeah. That is. And the reason he did it is because when he contacted big shows, like, I mean, WWE didn't exist then, did it? So it wouldn't have been there. It would have been WWWF, Vince's right. father's promotion at the time. But any, like, big promotions like that, he could call them up and go, oh, yes, it's the Wrestling Times. It sounds really interview. official. Sounds so official. The That's- word zone isn't in there, so you know it's good. Like, yeah. You know? But I like the idea of, like, little Paul Heyman as a small little wrestling fan, you know. Paul Heyman presents the Wrestling Times. Today's top story. Wrestling is fun. <laughs> he was a super fan, though. Mm. That's what I think is noticeable about him. And so many times when we've been watching guys, and you can tell the ones that are fans, the ones that were not fans. Mm. Steve Austin, massive fan growing up. Mick Foley, massive fan growing up. Brock Lesnar, not a fan growing Mm. up at all, you know? So when you see the guys who are fans and have that... Like, there's that little spark, I think, by being a fan that drives you. If I'm a fan and I love wrestling, at the end of the day, I'm going to do things that I wouldn't do if I wasn't a fan. Would you say that being a fan of wrestling helps give you that star appeal as a performer? Absolutely. Because you understand what it is 
the crowd wants. Provided you don't lose track of being a fan. Because yeah. there are guys who like stop being fans. Like there's so many wrestlers who like leave wrestling after a while and you, they don't they don't keep up with it, they don't watch it, they don't watch wrestling while they're still there, and they stop being fans and they lose that connection. Yeah. Jerry Lawler, for instance, I think stopped being like an actual fan of the wrestling product long 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 ago and you lose the passion you know but if you are a fan and you can remember what it's like to be a fan kevin owens seth rollins Sami Zayn, you know dean ambrose those are all guys who are super fans growing up and they still are fans and that passion you can't imitate i do think it is more than just passion it's it's an understanding of how that industry works because it's something that I think I say this as an outsider coming in you cannot comprehend the wrestling industry until you've been in it that you just you can't because it's so weird yeah I was trying to explain this to someone at work the other day who's watched one wrestling match and I was trying to explain to her why wrestling is so enthralling and why it works the way it is and I was trying to explain to her that there's this entire culture and attitude that doesn't exist in any other medium it's just wrestling and if you aren't part of that you cannot you cannot sell to that industry it's very interesting because like billy corgan recently uh it <laughs> was burned quite badly in the wrestling business and he was being interviewed and he was literally saying look i've worked in tv movies music everything every aspect of entertainment i've been involved in there's nothing like wrestling yeah. in terms of what makes fans like stuff what will work the politics backstage how it all comes together it is a really unique sense yeah. i think Heyman is uniquely positioned always was he is a fan he loves wrestling you can yeah. tell that because that's like, <laughs> yeah because like even though he wasn't raised by wrestling in that he wasn't like a member of the heart family his you know his family wasn't in it but he was raised by wrestling and that he yeah. grew up watching it on tv every day and he was fortunate enough to be in a position you know being in new york you know being the son of some wealthy parents yeah he was able to do things like you flipped your lid when he, they told the story about meeting vince's dad and bruno sammartino because he overheard that they liked going to this steakhouse and then he rang up said oh yeah i was with vince senior and bruno at the steakhouse you know he said about getting backstage passes and then there you go 14 years old backstage so Madison Square garden that's so clever that's fucking insane yeah it's so like could you could you do that these days do you think i think you could i think if you were in the right place at the right time and you had the right attitude yeah you could i do believe if paul Heyman was born the same year i was born i think he could still do maybe not to the same extent the quite amount of power he got at such a young age but i still think you can do those kinds of it's little the tricks. hustle is i think i mean it's it's a word which i is i like to use in wrestling which you know is hustle when yeah. you've got someone who just kind of they're pulling themselves by their own bootstraps the only momentum they have is what they've created themselves they're making a go of it i fucking love that and before you know it he's like a full-time camera person working eventing the shows hearing stories from people talking about what a pain in the ass he was apparently he elbowed the other photographers like he'd wait until like the perfect shot and then elbow them out of the way and get it what a dick i bet he was so awful to work with at that point I can you imagine like I'd have 14 hated him. Year, and if you were like a full-time cameraman yeah like you've been working in that industry for 15 years like you've got your degree or whatever and <laughs> 15 years someone, experience he's not even got one of those vests with all the pockets <laughs> and he's in here taking pictures with the rest of us but what happened around this time as well is that he was not doing this so he could become a cameraman he was doing this because he knew he wanted to be in wrestling yeah by hook or by crook and his passion and his drive and the hustle and all that, he starts getting noticed 
by people like uh, Classy Freddie Blassie, Captain Lou Albano, and uh, another wrestling manager great who made you laugh quite a bit, the Grand Wizard of Wrestling. Yeah, all guys I'd never heard of and would refuse to even acknowledge that they exist. The Grand Wizard of Wrestling? Back when wrestling was proper, we had wizards, we had captains, we had classy old men who called us pencil-necked geeks. <laughs> Grand Wizard, A though. simpler time, like. <laughs> but what Heyman would do is he would just... He was kind of like almost like mentored a little bit by these guys they kind mm. of saw that he had something and they would start to impart little grains of wisdom and keep in mind this is back in the time this is before vince jr had even taken over wrestling wrestling was territories it was closed it was kayfabe we did not talk to the outside world we mm. did not let them know our secrets that was weakening wrestling that was you know that was the worst thing you could do so it speaks a lot that he was able to as a total outsider yeah get that knowledge quite early on and it was only by i mean dusty Rhodes as well he literally just decides to go i'm going to go to florida oh my god so yeah. i can meet dusty Rhodes. and did you do you want to talk about how he actually got into dusty Rhodes's meetings so he overheard that there was going to be one of these round the table meetings, basically where they decide. Is was it the booking of the match? Isn't so they it? booked the show. Book the show, so and they... that like you don't get much more high profile yeah. in terms of security. Like ESPN did a documentary on WWE a couple of years ago, and when it came to this meeting, the booking meeting, cameras out. Wow. You don't see inside here. Outsiders are not permitted. <laughs> So, young Paul Heyman, still only a photographer at this point, as far as I know. 17. 17 years 17. old. 17! Just walked with confidence into that business room and just sort of sat in the corner and just listened, just to learn. And eventually he was, well, he, he answered a question or he, he made himself known in some way. And uh, <laughs> they just let him stay just because he was ballsy enough to be like, yeah, I want to learn from you. Yeah, Dusty was like, what the fuck are you doing here? And he's like, I'm here to learn from you because you're the greatest. And Dusty was like, yeah, I'm the greatest daddy. So you can learn with Dusty Rhodes. It's like, okay, he, he knows when to schmooze, when to flatter, like, you know? Do you know what I think is really interesting about that, though, is that really, what's the worst that could have gone wrong there? I mean, the worst that could have went wrong was that he would have been like blacklisted as like here's this is fucker is that really gonna happen though you think of a 17 year old going in there who just really wants to you know learn from the best they're not gonna fire him they're not gonna blacklist him they're gonna say look you can't come in here that's the worst that's gonna happen there are situation. certain people who would have done that in this time period particularly so do you think he was just lucky that it was Dusty Rhodes in that room at that time the right combination of schmooze and ego brushing mm. right place right time right things have been said because if you showed up like you know, somewhere like, I don't know, like, if you were in fucking Georgia and you just showed up and they asked you what the fuck are you doing there and you went, I'm, I'm here to learn, they would have told you to fuck off and they might have beaten the shit out of you as well. This was, again, back when wrestling was a little bit more a Wild West, you know, yeah. before it became more homogenized. <laughs> but he had a well-rounded upbringing, had Mr. Heyman. Not only uh, was he forcibly inserting himself into the wrestling business, he also became the head photographer of Studio 54, which was, like, the nightclub in New York City at the time, which, of course, was the centre of nightlife in the world at the time, I can guess. So he literally walks in and they're like, oh, our, you know, our photographer is gone because of some falling out. And he's like, oh, I'll do it. What, are you a photographer? Yeah! Whole life I've been a photographer. And he's head photographer for this club. How old is he here? 
He's like 18? That's ridiculous. Age 18, he's had like more of a career than I've had at 26. And I think of myself as quite a successful 26-year-old. All we know is that in the entertainment industry in the early 80s, they did not check CVs or ask for references. Didn't have a LinkedIn back then, did they? (laughs) Can't can't check endorsements. Hang on a second, Mr. Heyman. We've checked your LinkedIn profile and no one has endorsed your skills for photography. (laughs) So he becomes a promoter then for Studio 54 then, like just through happenstance and all that i mean i always look at stuff like this and part of me gets really frustrated and kind of go how the fuck like can this happen mm. literally because if you sat down and you wanted to do this and you put all your energy into doing that it probably wouldn't fucking happen what doing what he did yeah well okay here's a depressing thing which some people won't want me to say i wouldn't be able to do that i'm sorry i will say this right now he would not have been able to do that if he'd been a woman yeah, it's true. Literally, the only reason he could do that, he was a white man, he had money. That's true, yeah, very possible. <laughs> well, I mean, like, you know, as far as it goes in terms of the... You know, like, when people, like, you see they have this good fortune, and there's these opportunities seem to fall arse backwards into all the time. But it's not that, is it? It's always that they're seeking those opportunities. Yeah. And they are, like, Paul Heyman genuinely worked his arse off to get where he is. I'm not saying that he didn't also have luck and privilege, but he did work really hard absolutely i think it's so funny as well at this point where he's like i don't think i could be a wrestling manager or be on camera in wrestling at this point when you think even just from hearing the stuff that he's doing here you've got this level of charisma you've no fucking business being anywhere other than being on the camera so he decides to become a wrestling manager an on-screen manager and he starts going and doing all these little tiny indie shows and these small little regional promotions under the name of paul e dangerously fucking love that name (laughs) and of course in the true style of the time you basically looked into the uh into pop culture you saw something that was popular and you just took it and you made it yours so what was it that inspired his character then uh johnny dangerously which is a movie that michael keaton was in and apparently now i don't see this at all but apparently he looked like a young michael keaton yeah he said that i was like yeah you wish mate you're a handsome young man but you're not a michael keaton no way can you see paul Heyman? Being Beetlejuice. No. I, I really can't. Like, doesn't, I could see him as Birdman. I, I was mean, just trying to imagine him as Birdman. <laughs> I don't know. So he, uh, he traded bookings for spots in his magazine. And all of a sudden, the Wrestling Times becomes this amazing thing. It's like, look, I'll get you on the show. You can make an appearance in my magazine. I'll do a nice picture on you, a nice spread. And it kind of everyone's scratching everyone's back. So just so you know, if you want to book me and Joanna on your local indie show, we will mention you on this podcast. Yeah. You know, get some bookings. Mm-hmm. Reckon we'll hit the Performance Center in June, and then main roster and WrestleMania after that. Yeah, It'll I think that's fine. We've got drive. I've been doing this my whole life, wrestling. <laughs> I told you that you reminded me of a young Paul Heyman. You did. That's the nicest thing you've ever said. And okay. I think that that speaks volumes about uh, about where you've come as a wrestling fan. <laughs> That I can look at as the uh, the bulbous hemorrhoid on life, as Jim Rossman's called him. And you can be like, oh, that's like, oh. <laughs> to be fair, I mean, the context around it, you weren't like, yeah, your business skills are a lot like Paul Heyman's. You remind me of him. <laughs> now, I think as well, one of the reasons why you, you uh, had an affinity for Heyman here is we found out about Paul Heyman in Memphis hmm. and Jerry Lawler did not like him. Yeah. Now we watched this uh, shoot interview with Heyman where he's basically talking about why he didn't get along in Memphis as if this needs description. So he comes out and he's told, yo, get some heat, talk up your guys. And he says, well, you know, 
I've heard that Jerry Lawler is the big man around town in Memphis, and it kind of makes sense, I guess, seeing how many lesbians there are here in Memphis. <laughs> lesbians! <laughs> now, I could watch Paul Heyman scream the word lesbians. on. I could make that my ringtone. Lesbians! And I just, and he basically gets fired after his first day, and then he has to get brought back because so many people were perturbed by it. Everyone's got to watch. I'm sorry, but we do have to find a way of getting that on our website. We'll pop that up on, on how to Heyman just, on HowToWrestling.com, yeah. Yeah, Paul Heyman's impression of Jerry Lawler telling the lesbian story <laughs> is so, so funny. Because oh like, everyone li- literally loses their mind that yeah. he says this because it's meant to be like, yo, it's a Can't clean show. Can't say lesbians. Can't say lesbians. No way. Le- they don't exist, mate. What are you talking about? It's, it's Memphis in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thing that happened often in his career. It's like, he makes chaos he said yeah. when well, there's chaos there's opportunity mm. and he said you got a thousand calls to the station half of them were saying i'm never gonna listen to this show again the other half were saying like this was fucking crazy yeah so straight away in wrestling if you make people want to kill you doesn't matter what you say as long as you don't insult any of the wrestlers yeah. then you got to get on tv yeah i think it was it shows that he really understands that really yeah he, he knew he was gonna be fine in the first of many many instances of people who clearly want to talk about how much they fucking hate Heyman's guts mm. jerry lawler with a very reserved um you know paul rubbed some people the wrong way and he had his way of doing things he fucking hated him a line that stuck with me was uh, when jerry lawler said uh, he had a lot of uh, charisma <laughs> It's a really nice way of saying I hate him. Like, you can tell how much those two hate yeah. each other. Yeah. They did, like, a thing where, like, uh, when Paul and ECW came to Raw in 1997 to promote their shows, and they did, like, a debate between Heyman and Jerry, and Jerry was literally unloading 10 years worth of, you motherfucker, I hate you so... It's the most passionate I've ever seen Jerry Lawler, <laughs> was when he's fired up talking about how much he hates Paul Heyman. Well, I'm not surprised because most of Paul Heyman's material on Jerry Lawler is that he's a paedophile. <laughs> Which good for Paul Heyman. You know, I'll be honest, first time I ever found out about Jerry and all that stuff. <laughs> all that stuff. All that stuff. <laughs> Hashtag how to all that stuff. <laughs> Coming soon. But the first time I found out about that was through watching these Heyman videos. Really? I remember like, it was like 2005, 2006, I got LimeWire for the first time and someone sent me a link saying, hey, there's this great like Heyman shoot interview and he's talking about like Jerry Lawler like, yo, hey Jerry, let's go down to the playground. She looks like she'd be good for a ride on the swings. I'm like, right, you just called, you just called Jerry Lawler a paedophile. And then, you know, I start looking up and I'm like, oh! Oh, he's a paedophile! <laughs> oh! What a funny way to oh. find out that terribly disturbing fact, like. Did you think he was just pulling it out of his ass then? I thought it was kind of like one of those things where it's like, oh, you know, like there's yeah, loads... Yeah, like an in-joke or something. Yeah, there's loads of times in wrestling where it's like, not necessarily even an in-joke, but kind of like a hiding in plain sight. Like, oh, okay. we know that guy has got some, you know, history here and whatnot, and... But I didn't know that there was a court case. You know, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know it got that far. Oh, I can't wait for How To Jerry Lawler. That's going to be such a good episode. Yeah, an amazing episode. He starts to develop his character at the time. And one of the most fascinating things with Heyman is to see how his character always managed to be in the zeitgeist. It's the 80s. What do people hate down south? They hate New York City. They hate yuppies. They hate the big fucking cell phone. They hate Wall Street. That's what his character is. And he's there with his big fucking phone talking about 
this phone means that I can take important calls and pe the idea in the late 80s of someone being on a fucking phone. How dare you? <laughs> Do you know what I couldn't stop thinking of during this segment was how much Hank Hill would have hated Paul <laughs> dangerously. <laughs> he would have. And you just know Bobby would have loved him. Oh, yeah. And Hank would not have approved. And then Bobby would go and get his, hey, Dad, I'm just like Paul Heyman. I'm just like Paul dangerously. I thought you'd be proud of me if I got a big phone, Dad. No, Bobby. <laughs> And then Cotton would try to kill him. Yeah. So he was on national TV, but at the same time, even though he was, you know, he was on like AWA, he was on these kind of, you know, pretty big exposure being shown around the country. But at the same time, he was going to these little tiny dots in the middle of nowhere. Like he went to Alabama hmm. so he could learn, he could book, so he could like put together shows. He knew that he had value as a manager, but he really wanted to be able to write and to create. Hmm. So he was going to all these tiny little promotions like that would maybe get 50, 100 people in. And he was going there, traveling a long distance, so he could be a part of the process of booking matches and getting a bit of a CV together and a bit of experience of writing shows. So would he have been paid for all these little bits out here? He was being paid for being on the AWA, the TV show. He wasn't being paid for going to like Alabama and these little dots in the middle of nowhere. So was it only... Because of the fact that he had money from his parents that he was able to afford to go travel this far and have all the time to do this. I would definitely say that him having money from his parents has helped Paul Heyman out throughout his career. Yeah. But he was making money in wrestling. It's as if he was, you know... Because you think of all these people like you know Mick Foley and all these wrestlers who were living in their car. Yeah. Who, who were travelling all the time, didn't even have time to see their family. Meanwhile, you've got Paul Heyman taking time off to go learn skills. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but just wondering how. I honestly don't know if it was the case that he was using... You know, his. I don't think Paul Heyman was sleeping in the back of cars no, in the I dead of really winter. Imagine that. I don't imagine that happening. But it's not as if it was just a case of, you know, you know, TJ Perkins, for instance, his mum worked in an airline, so he got free tickets everywhere, so he was able wow. to pay for his own airfare. I That's, didn't know So that gave that. him like a real boost up. Able to travel the world, find out how misandry is really affecting everyone across. It's a global issue, Joe, okay? It's a global issue. <laughs> <laughs> But Heyman, I think he did have a leg up on people, but mm. I don't think it was a really unfair kind of, oh, it's just some rich kid buying his way into wrestling. Mm. I don't think it was necessarily that. But he managed to get himself into the number two promotion of the time, WCW World Championship Wrestling, where he began his volatile announcing relationship with uh, Jim Ross. Now, you didn't know what to make about Heyman and Jim Ross. You thought they hated each other. Yeah, it's really hard to tell like what their relationship is from this documentary because they both just like Paul Heyman just talks about how much he winds up Jim Ross and Jim he Ross needles him. Yeah, and Jim Ross just goes on about how much he hates <laughs> Paul Heyman. But I, I mean. Well, you said it, that they actually really get on really well. Yeah, because so. I thought, I was like, oh, you, you asked me, like, do these two like each other? And I go, oh, they get on really, really well. Like, really, really, like, you know, close professionals. Like, and then it's just Jim Ross on screen going, he pissed me off so fucking much. I hated his fucking guts. He was the most <laughs> annoying, diabolical piece of shit I've ever... So what Heyman would do on commentary was that he would... He would wind him up, mm. but he would wind up JR so that he would turn around and be like all pissed off because JR was always at his best when he was angry. And Paul knew that, so Paul would just, you know, straddle him along. Because so many times in wrestling with the announcers where they're just kind of set back and they're like, oh, wow, look at this. Yeah. And no one's challenging anyone, you know, no one's getting fire out of anyone, and they just kind of slow it down. Whereas JR was fucking full of passion, like the amount of times in WWF, like when Heyman was commentating with JR. 
and the action would like stop and literally the camera would swing around the two of them would be there like fucking throwing their nose going let me tell you he's a he's a son of a bitch Kurt Angle he's a no good son of a bitch oh man it was so fucking great it really like it 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 boiled up the blood it made you think that what was happening was really fucking intense if these two were at us then you felt like really invested it's really weird now looking at that because you just I don't know if you could have that now can you imagine Michael Cole or JBL being incensed by anything? Well, like, all they ever do, if they ever do wind each other up, it's about innocuous, inane things. Yeah. Like, what, theirs in T-H-E-I-R? Don't you mean <laughs> T-H-Y apostrophe Get out of here, Saxton. You know, it's real lame duck shit like yeah. that. As opposed to, you know, we're having a disagreement about those men or those women mm. in the ring, and this is fucking getting the fires burning. And Oh, God, it's such a, such a storyline, you we're know? We're lacking that now, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Heyman is a manager as well in WCW, and he puts together his supergroup, which was known as the Dangerous Alliance, which is really important because he was pretty much on TV non-stop. All the baddies, or as he calls them, an alliance of businessmen, have <laughs> <laughs> all joined together, and he was, you know, he was managing them all. He was like the big bad guy, basically, on their TV show. And were you impressed to see how Heyman had an eye for talent Absolutely, yeah. So he was given what four guys, four big stars, four big stars, yeah. Who like Rick Rude, uh, Larry Zbysko, Arn Anderson, Medusa, yeah, big big names. Guys, yeah. I've never heard of. <laughs> but yeah, these four big guys, and then he was like, mm, "No, there's something missing." And he had the forethought to go, "No, we need a star of tomorrow." And he, because he is able to see talent and he knows how to foster talent, which is two incredibly useful skills in that industry, he saw Steve Austin and thought, right, yeah, I'm going to put him in this group and he's going to learn from these experienced wrestlers who are huge stars and they're going to learn from him because he's going to help innovate and bring fresh face to the team. And oh my God, Steve Austin. It's so, like, that, like... Honestly, if you wanted to go back in time and like make there not be a wrestling business, you'd stop this from happening. This is the <laughs> this is the this is what Biff Marty, would do. Marty, we gotta go back. Biff has stopped wrestling because <laughs> Biff would love wrestling. What the fuck am I talking about? Marty would probably do this to the fucking prick. But um, <laughs> this is the moment because literally every episode of Steve Austin's podcast, if he gets a chance, he'll talk about how the most he ever learned in his life and how he became a pro was being in the car with Rick Rude and Arn Anderson and Paul Heyman, all these guys learning from them on like, you know, the eight hour car journeys. Fucking Rick Rude's there with a six pack of beer and two joints and Austin learns the psychology of wrestling that way. And pretty much that's one of the most important things that ever happened in yeah. Austin's career and by proxy all of wrestling. It is it's just so clever to be able to look at something and go, Yeah, this is gonna work. Long term, we need to do something else. We need to bring in something special. It's really alarming how few people in wrestling have that yeah. what about tomorrow? Honestly, every ten years wrestling hits like a brick wall when they realise they've no stars. Yeah. You know, it's it's so crazy. And like, there's so few people. Heyman's one of them. You can probably look at someone like William Regal. Yeah. Triple H has mm. that a bit. But like, even like people like uh, Terry Funk, for instance, who, who was, he was a veteran who knew that he had to start putting other guys over so there would be a business left for him to actually 
you know, have a legacy to be left behind to. Yeah. So it's in everyone's interest. It's not like, hey, get rid of the old guys. No, because they're, they're going to benefit from this just as much. And a lot of the older guys didn't like Heyman for that reason. Uh, there That's was a rumour he would take over TNA at one point, like around 2010 or thereabouts. And he was asking, what would you do if you took over this company? And he go, if you're over 40, I'd cut your fucking head off and get rid of you. And everyone in TNA who was a star at that time was 45, 50, 55. You had Hogan, Flair... Sting, all these old men, and everyone's really pissed off. How dare he say that? But he was right. I mean, I would go for a bit of a middle ground there. I maybe wouldn't cut their heads off. <laughs> but um, a lawsuit on your hands there. Slowly like. start to phase them out. Sure, get yeah. them involved in younger talent, train them, mutually beneficial relationships. So Heyman ends up leaving WCW. And because of a legal injunction and a lawsuit, because he sued them uh, through his father after he left, we're not allowed to find out exactly why he left. Oh, no. The only he's ever said about it is he said that basically I told them to go fuck themselves. I hated them. They hated me. So he's pretty pretty much going to leave wrestling at this point. What would he have gone on to do? I'm sure he'd have been great or whatever, but... Just interesting to think. Do you know what he was actually seriously considering doing at the time? No. He was being lined up to be the rival of Howard Stern. You know, the shock jock radio DJ in America? Oh, that gross, awful... Oh my yep. God, he'd have been amazing at that. He would have been amazing at that. Ugh. And he was very close to doing that. Wow. And apparently, he said he got a phone call from one of the Crockett's, who were one of the guys who ran the, the territories in WCW, before it became WCW. But like, it was interesting because he was getting talked down by, by this guy Crockett because he was you know basically saying, are you going to be one of these people who's complaining about wrestling or are you going to actually try and contribute and make it better? He had a great quote which was, so have you got a vision or are you just bitching? Boom. Boom. So like Paul Heyman is pretty much then, you know, he's in, in wrestling at a time in like 1993, 1994, where the most impactful thing that was happening was that there was a steroid scandal and Hulk Hogan had left the company in WWF and wrestling was just shit at the time, for lack of a better term. Mm. There were no new stars the attendance was down, interest was down, people weren't buying it, wrestling was a bit of a joke. You know, the, the audience was smaller than it had ever been. It seemed like it was in the fucking shitter. Yeah. So Heyman, he ends up finding himself in somewhere called ECW, Eastern Championship Wrestling. Not extreme at this point, it's only oh, Eastern. Eastern, yeah. okay. Starts off as Eastern Championship Wrestling and he's brought in basically as a executive producer. Mm-hmm. He's there to help book the shows help uh, guys with interviews, help them with their creative. How old is he at this point? At this point, he would have been early 20s. Wow. You know, 23, 24. Oh, God. That's such a cool job to do. And it was really interesting because the Eastern Championship Wrestling, was there was nothing special about it. It was a dime a dozen. It was just a small Philadelphia promotion. The guys who weren't signed to WCW or WWF at the time, whoever was around, we'd bring them in. They'd do a few shows autograph signing that's it there were no homegrown stars there the audiences were small the only people who were there were there to see these stars from yesteryear just kind Mm -hmm. of stroll in and collect money and they wanted to change that that's why paul was brought in so he started like studying tapes and bringing people in Heyman never gets the credit he deserves for this he was the first person to look at tapes in japan and kind of go shit that that could work over here or look down in Mexico, where there was fucking audiences of nearly 100,000 people, and go, shit, let's bring some of those guys up here. No one's seen that before. It's only in retrospect where you can see that a lot of the stuff that happened, these important moves in wrestling, were restarted by Paul, yeah. and then someone else goes, oh shit, we should do that. <laughs> like, everyone always says, WCW, they were the ones who brought in cruiserweights. 
They brought in Cruiserweights after Paul Heyman did it. Wow. It's just that WCW had national TV and Paul was doing it in a bingo hall in Philadelphia. So he did a lot of stuff that was essentially co-opted by other groups, WWF and WCW. Hmm. And he was way ahead of the curve. And I think that's really important for people to, to know about that. So he started bringing guys in and also helping people develop their characters. It was real important for him that he would like sit down with people and talk to them. It's like, who is your character? And like, is that character you? No? Well, then why the fuck are you doing this character? Like, he would take a guy like the Sandman. <laughs> okay? You, the Sandman... That's the thing. This is, this is all happening at a time where WWE is having these ridiculous gimmick characters. Yeah, like and there's plumbers nothing of substance. and clowns. Yeah. It's like a kid's TV show, basically. But like, he would look at someone called the Sandman, okay? Do you know what the Sandman's original gimmick was? Was it that he makes people fall asleep? I don't know. No, he was a surfer. He would come out to the what? beach. You come out to the beach, boys... In a wetsuit with a big giant surfboard, big sunglasses, and be like, hey, everybody, let's go to the beach. The Sandman didn't surf. The Sandman spent time in jail. The Sandman usually got in bar brawls, chain smoked, and drank. Jesus. So Paul sits down with him and goes, well, look, your character is not surfing USA. With all due respect to Brian Wilson, that shit's not going to get over. <laughs> Even okay? Brian Wilson didn't surf. <laughs> if fake, Brian, fake surf boy. If, if Brian Wilson saw this, he would have been really upset. And he goes, look, <laughs> you drink, you fight, you smoke. Your new character is you drink, you fight, you smoke. There you go. Wow. And he would do that with loads of guys and help them develop believable characters. Because the most important and most successful characters in wrestling are the ones that are based off mm. their real personality. It's less of a stretch if you can kind of see a bit of you in what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. So, Eastern Championship Wrestling becomes Extreme Championship Wrestling. And Paul decides to push it as an R-rated product. Barbed wire, weapons, tables, blood, scantily clad women, men hitting women. You know, he, he made it be this, like rated 18 product because as you said over in the other shows you had like silly cartoon gimmicks and the serious grown-up wrestling fan who was you know maybe a kid during the 80s when hogan was around now they're in their early 20s they don't want to watch cartoon wrestling anymore they want to see something a bit more closer to real life and that's what he was giving them I thought it was really interesting that he used hip hop music in entrances and yeah. promotional music and everyone thought he was mad yeah, he was. You can't have hip hop and wrestling. What are you talking about? Or heavy metal and wrestling? That's so strange. Do you like not... those those two music genres are so intrinsically linked now with wrestling. It's like impossible to, to imagine a time when that wasn't the case for me. And it's so strange to see what Heyman is someone who not only really had his finger on the pulse and what was going on in wrestling and what wrestling fans wanted, but he had this innate ability which no one else in wrestling has ever had, which was to look outside of the wrestling bubble once in a while and kind of go, "What's going on over mm. here?" You know. You know, at this time, in the mid-90s, guess who approached WWF to do a concert at SummerSlam? Metallica. And Vince McMahon was like, Metallica? Never heard of them. Fuck off. Wow. Can you imagine? They were the hottest metal band in the world at the time. Amazing. Around 2002, 2003, WrestleMania 19, Paul Heyman, he was writing for SmackDown. Guess who he wanted to bring in to do music? Metallica? No, he wanted to bring in System of a Down because that huh. was the hot band at the time. Chop Suey and Toxicity. It was a fucking huge deal. Yeah. And Vince was like, what? No, fuck off. And wrestling has always struggled to connect the dots between what's popular out there and what's popular in here. And Heyman's always had that. It's, yeah. So yeah, he was doing things like guys would come out to cool music. And I remember something I loved about ECW was that, you know, they wouldn't come out to silly wrestling music. They'd come out to like Alice in Chains. Raven came out to like Offspring. They had Nirvana. They had 
all these big fucking awesome kick-ass songs that Heyman just picked. He didn't pay the rights. Wow. He was caught up in litigation the whole time and all the lawsuits were dropped when he went through bankruptcy. But he was constantly being sued. And, and the reason why he was able to get away with it was because, well, his uh, parents were lawyers. His dad was a really, really infamous litigator and he got away with all this stuff. Nice. So, I mean, I guess it's worth talking about in ECW because we've seen some glimpses here and there, but are you aware of like how fucking like greasy and violent and stuff ECW was? No, not really. Like they pushed the envelope like in ways which have not been done since. They had like storylines involving pregnancy, you know, you got someone pregnant, or they had storylines involving lesbianism, they had storylines involving uh, a wrestler stealing another wrestler's son away from them and indoctrinating them. He did all this crazy fucking shit. And some, to be honest, like in retrospect, looking back at ECW, it's aged terribly yeah. because it's him trying to push the boundaries in the mid nineties, which means you get way too much blood, way too much violence. You get the treatment of women in this. Like he would literally go to strip clubs and pick up strippers. Like right, you, 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 you. Do you want to be on my wrestling show? And lots of managers and valets in ECW came through places like the Bada Bing, which is the actual strip club from The Sopranos. Wow. So it's always worth bearing in mind that Heyman had kind of a, his finger tapped into the more greasy side of things as well. It's not just like, wow, innovation. It's also like, wow, fucking horrible shit. I hate to say it, but it's it's still both, really. Because, mm. I mean, that is what the fans wanted at the time. Absolutely. It is a shame that, of course, it is heavily, heavily impacted on the wrestling industry fan base now. Like, it's so easy to go into any you know forum about wrestling and it's a very direct influence as to what they grew up watching yeah it's true <laughs> and i mean it's i loved ecw when i was a kid like when i was younger i i remember being fascinated by it because it was so different and it was violent and it did all these things looking back it's like it has aged really badly mm. and it's like it's awkward to watch now in many many cases where they just go way too over the top but it did work in terms yeah. of getting eyes there. And they went to they went to the extreme to use their own <laughs> to use their own phrase, you know? I don't know if like Heyman regrets any of the stuff that he uses. I doubt it. Have you seen him on Twitter? He's I mean gross, he is like. a gross old man. He he for all his respect of, of women wrestlers, he is still a bit of a, a lech. There were no, like, you know, there's pretty much no female fans in ECW. Yeah. You know, was, I wonder why. You wonder why, exactly. <laughs> he is basically, he's got a lot of similarities with Penn Jillette in that. Oh, respect. God, absolutely. <laughs> I can see some boobies. Mm. Hey, well, my name is Penn Jillette, and this is my partner. He is the beast incarnate. <laughs> Tell her. And he never speaks. Fuck! <laughs> But he did things as well, you know, other than pushing the envelope. He was the first guy to have fan cams. He would find the super fans in the audience. He would give them camcorders. He would have them videotape the house shows, everything. That's and so the fans, the super fans, the tape traders, they would pay top dollar just to get a shaky cam mm. of the, the show from the weekend because they wanted to see every bit of ECW. He had street teams. You know, super fans. You love ECW so much? Here you go. Here's some fucking flyers. Flyer. Street team. Off you That's go. That's so He's made brand ambassadors out of his audience. That's so good. Do you know now, even now, that is like one of the principles of effective marketing. Is you find the people who can champion your brand. You make them ambassadors for your brand and you make them come up with 
content and work for your brand. You make them work for you for nothing because it's an honour for them. That's so clever. He's also one of the first people to use the internet as well. They used to do internet conventions, uh, things called Cyber Slam, where people could go, you know, you know, the thing we saw with him and talking about Lawler, that was an internet convention thing where people could wow. send in questions on the internet. For 1995. Jesus Christ, that's amazing. Pretty amazing stuff, like. 1995. That's before broadband. We hear as well, though, some of the less nice things. You know, for all the motivation and all the innovation, you know, the style was very, very innovative. You heard people saying things like, sometimes he was going to lie to you. And a lot of the times, <laughs> you know, by being so good at helping people find their confidence, he would manipulate them. Oh, yeah. I think that's a big part of being a good motivator is you have to be able to manipulate people. It's a sad truth. The two things kind of like motivation and manipulation, there's a very fine line there. And I think oftentimes it's one of the same thing. Because, mm. I mean, he's done things, he made people do things that they didn't want to do. Yeah, I Like, bet. there was a time where, like, there was a problem in the building and they needed, like, ten minutes or whatever to keep things rolling. And they thought the fans were going to leave because they had, like, a power outage or something like that. So one of the women valets, who was a lady by the name of Kimona... He convinced her to do a striptease up on the stage, so everyone oh, would be like, "God, I've heard about this." And he, he, she didn't want to do it, and he promised her it wouldn't be on the on the video. Didn't he tell her that the cameras weren't rolling? Yeah, and he filmed it, and he put it on the video, and became one of their best-selling videos of all time. And he got loads of publicity for it. But that was the type of thing that he was doing at the time. And there's really no small wonder that so many wrestling fans don't think women can be wrestlers. Yeah, and you've got shit like that. It's true. Fucking it's it's really true. Paul, Paul Heyman. You, Paul Heyman, I admire you greatly, but you're a skunk. He is a bit of a skunk at this point, You're absolutely. a skunk and a turd. <laughs> yeah, but, like, he made the fans feel like stars. Yeah. And he made them feel like they were the centre of the universe. Yeah. When you see people chanting, we want punk, or, you know, whatever, <laughs> when they chant whatever the fuck they want to chant, that has its roots, that entitlement. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's always a bad thing, by the way. I like when the crowd can be a bit lively at times. It's a really important part of wrestling, that entitlement. Yeah. The idea that you can help impact the show and help it evolve. I mean, that's been such a huge part of wrestling for, for the last 20 years. It's absolutely impossible to separate that now from the industry. But yes, it has its problems. I mean, he would, like, encourage the fans to chant as loudly as they could, say what they wanted to say. And that's why you now would have things in ECW. If a wrestler messed up a move, they chant you fucked up at them which when you think about it I remember at the time when I saw that needs to do I thought that's so fucking funny like you fucked up like brilliant you think about it though like you're fucking wrestling you fuck something up and everyone's just chanting at you you're probably in pain as well if you yeah. fuck it up you probably injured yourself slightly <laughs> you know it's crazy but he also as well he got them chanting ECW and there's nothing that bred that us versus them mentality more than people chanting ECW. Because mm. they didn't chant WWF, they didn't chant WCW, they chanted ECW. And the idea was it was us versus them. You know, fuck WWF, fuck WCW. Those guys, those killing wrestling, this is what wrestling is all about here. And you don't have that anymore, that kind of... You, there was a word you had, you found it in a marketing thing that you did. It's like a disruptive brand thing, was that what it was called? When someone's meant to like, disrupt things? What disrupt the industry? It's, yeah, disruptive yeah. marketing. And that's what it was. He was basically building up ECW by tearing down the other companies. Yeah, it's true. And if you went from ECW to WCW, fuck you. And yeah. if you went from ECW to WWF, fuck you. And I thought that was so sad. There were so many wrestlers who had given so much to that company. And their last night, they get you sold out chance. Or fuck you, whoever. You know? It's harsh, isn't it? Harsh. Clever, but harsh. And it made other people take notice. Like, Vince took notice of ECW 
and started promoting ECW and being invested in it because fans were chanting ECW at WWE shows. And he wanted to nip that in the bud. And he basically saw that if I could help this company, I'm probably going to help my company. Because WWF was getting his ass kicked at the time in the ratings by the other company. So he started using the idea of using ECW as a kind of launching point. He could try and cultivate some stars there that he could use. And then Vince could send some people down to ECW that need fine-tuning. Very yeah. much like NXT is now. It is, actually. It's a lot like NXT. I and mean, NXT is nicer, I think. Now, what I like about this documentary is that there's so many times where Paul Heyman is like, actually, that thing you've heard about me is wrong. The thing that always wound people up was that Heyman was on WWE's payroll. And how dare Heyman say fuck WWE when he was in you know, their back pocket getting money from them. He never received money from WWE. However, Two Cold Scorpio was sent to WWE while in ECW, and I got $1,000 a week to play his music, which I no longer got. So Vince supplemented the money that I would have gotten from Two Cold Scorpio appearing on my show by giving me $1,000 a week, which was not sent to Paul Heyman, but sent to ECW. So he didn't get money. I'm, it, you, you know what? You look great in that waistcoat, Paul. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> you know what, Paul? You're just so good at giving promos. You know, I just stopped listening to actually what you were saying and I just believe in you. The money was resting in my account. I feel I should point out that, that Kevin is doing the Donald Trump hands as he speaks. I'll just have Paul's got way bigger hands. Like, yeah. <laughs> His ability to psych people up I think is like second to none. It's like a magic power. It really is. His rah-rah speeches, you know, like where he would get the whole group of people into the room and it's like, we're about to go out there now and we're going to change wrestling forever. And Mm. he would just psych people up. And we saw these great footage of like people struggling with promos and Paul just being there one-on-one, like really trying to bring it out of them. Like there was one with Rhino, which was so fascinating. Rhino's just there kind of sheepish and he's like, no, you hold up the belt and you go, Rhino. So they associate you with this belt. It's so amazing. Really interesting. It was an interview during the documentary. I can't remember who it was who said it. it might have been Tommy Dreamer who said that Paul Heyman knew exactly the right way to talk to each wrestler like he knew what would bring out the best in them whether that be encouragement or harsh truths or just uh, an ear someone a shoulder to cry on or whatever he knew exactly what that person needed to hear to bring out the best in them and the reality is in ECW you had for lack of a better term some big personalities with big personal demons and you know and they had guys who were you know talked into working through injuries you know there were guys who had to be talked out of working through injuries you know this was like a company full of guys who were literally willing to get up on the cross and die for them that was one of the most amazing things that really emerged from this documentary for me was just the way that Paul Heyman managed to have such a negative impact in a way on some of these wrestlers lives in that they would they'd have to throw themselves through tables give themselves unprotected headshots they'd be working long hours they sometimes often wouldn't get paid for months mm. tommy dreamer said that he was owed 65 grand yeah oh, there's, Paul Heyman. there's a lot of people who are owed a lot of money by paul and yet they still, RVD, still heralds himself as a Paul Heyman guy. They all love him and they oh, they feel they still owe him so much, even though 
he they you know they had injuries they were in huge amounts of debt because of him like it's amazing that he was still able to motivate them and get them to love him i think what's so interesting is that like if we did this ep- if we did this podcast like 10 years ago for instance it'd be a much different story yeah well, a lot of people have mellowed and chilled out on Heyman since a lot of the wrestlers who felt particularly hard done by yeah because chances are if you were in ecw you had value beyond your years in ECW yeah. for every guy who literally was there for two months in ECW who gets a booking at an indie show that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise and people chant ECW at them and they play along with it okay that's like because of of Heyman and that company so there's a lot of people I mean Shane Douglas was a guy who was really hard done by because he was one of his Paul's top guys at the time and he wasn't getting the money he should have and he really helped put the company on the map and he was really bitter, and rightfully so, because he got fucked out of a lot of money. He yeah. wouldn't go and get the big money elsewhere because he stayed there. And But he, after that, he's run his own promotion, which is basically built off of ECW's legacy. So, you know, everyone's gotten to drink from the well, really, in one way, shape, or form. Yeah, I mean, I can kind of understand how it worked, because when you're given, I think when you're given the support of someone like Paul Heyman, it really did sound like, even though he wasn't able to pay them, he really did support them. Like he was there, he was motivating them, giving them that encouragement and the confidence to further their own career, which really is almost invaluable. There are so many guys who got contracts with big companies or got opportunities that would not have gotten. Yeah. Like the Blue Meanie is one of my favourite wrestlers. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the Blue Meanie. Only in that one clip from uh, your Vimeo account on yeah. the podcast. <laughs> so, so so Blue Meanie does not look like a wrestler and he does not look like a guy who, who, you know, Jim Ross and Vince McMahon and the people who are hiring going, hire that man. We, we need, need someone him. who's out of shape and you know, but he got there because he got over as a character in ECW. Loads of guys like who never would have gotten a look in the door because of what Hain was able to bring out of them in ECW. So I imagine it must have been very, very fulfilling to work at somewhere like ECW, where you could come up with an idea for your character, like wildest dreams, and you probably take it to Heyman, he'd be like, yeah, brilliant, let's do it. Yeah. Let's run with it, and I'll make it even better. Like, that must be such a great feeling, to be able to go, oh, everything I've ever wanted to do, I can actually finally do it. Well, that's why you had, like, people like, you know, when we talked about Steve Austin, mm-hmm. when we did Hate to Austin, you know, when he was, you probably can almost in retrospect see the important role Heyman played there now, because oh, yeah. when he was in ECW, what Austin was injured. All he did was sit down and talk about how much he fucking hated where he was and what how shit his career was, and that's all he wanted to do. And Paul was like, "Do it, let's yeah. do it," and he made it a big thing. Foley, same reason as well. He hated the fans at the time. He thought they expected too much of him. He brought that out, and they made it a big fucking story. Sometimes though, it went a little bit too far, and oftentimes that involved Raven, who was a very creative wrestler who had a lot of ideas to push the envelope himself. Um, the crucifixion angle. Um, I don't know if you heard about that. No. Right. So one time they thought it was a good idea to put the Sandman on a cross and give him a halo of barbed wire and bloody him up and literally leave him lying in the ring like he's Jesus on fucking Mount Sinai. Why? Because uh, it was a great image. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that crucifixion thing, though, really fucked them over because the night they did the crucifixion, there was also someone else in the audience who was coming to maybe see what this whole wrestling thing was about and give it a try and it agreed to maybe do some appearances. Uh, Kurt Angle. Oh my God. <laughs> literally fresh from winning his medal before he's talked to WWF, WCW, Heyman is like, yeah, come in. We do this athletic style of wrestling. You know, we do this technical wrestling here that you won't see anywhere else. You'll be a great fit. And Kurt shows up and he sees a fucking crucifixion in the ring. He goes over to Paul. He says, give me my check. If I see me, my name, or anything to do with me on your program, I'm suing you. That's Goodbye. amazing. Wow. So, you know, it didn't always work out 
well from in that sense. Wholesome boys like Kurt Angle are too pure for the no good ECW types. And I will say, you know, we talked about you know, ECW pushing the boundaries and it being blood and guts and hardcore. Brought in technical guys yeah. from Japan and he displayed a style of wrestling that you weren't seeing on TV. People like Eddie Guerrero, Chris Jericho, Dean Malenko, Chris Benoit. These are all technical guys who couldn't get signed elsewhere. He brought them in. They would do one hour fucking, you know, kick-ass matches. Something else Paul Heyman invented around this time? Triple threat matches. Never been done before. Wow. That whole dynamic. That's so, amazing. Contributions not just to the hardcore style of wrestling, but also to the, you know, mat-based pure style of wrestling as well. God. Did you like seeing that uh, ECW was basically a cottage industry and all the rest is chipped in to help make it work? It's like almost a cooperative if a cooperative was evil <laughs> and didn't help anyone. <laughs> like he made, you know, the guys drove the trucks, they put up the ring. One of the wrestlers was designing the t-shirts. Paul's mum was selling the t-shirts. Amazing. Until he fired her. Until he fired his own mother. That's just, it's, that needs to go on his like gravestone. Basically. I fired my own mother. I fired my own mother. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Bubba Ray Dudley was the business manager. He would book the buildings, send out the checks, all that stuff. And what's so clever about this is, I mean, it sounds ridiculous now, being thinking of like huge stars running an industry, like doing little jobs here and there. But how useful is that? And also, Paul Heyman himself was hugely into learning other skills. Like, there's stories in this whole documentary where he goes and learns how to do like editing, lighting, and he brings other wrestlers with him and he'll get them to learn how to do it because it's so invaluable to be able to be aware of not just your role in the industry, but what other people do as well. And the more you learn from them, the more you learn for yourself. That's amazing. Heyman, if you wanted to learn how to edit a TV show, he would say, yeah, come in and we'll edit the show and you can see what happens. Or writing the show, booking the show. He was like an open door. If you wanted to learn then you would learn. He wasn't forcing anyone. And those that learned, you know, it's invaluable for them, yeah. really, you know. Um, but the wrestlers are doing all these jobs. And it's around this time you start to kind of realise that Heyman, as a creative genius, absolutely. As a businessman and financial person, <laughs> fucking hell, no way. And to think the level of involvement that he had with, like, he's one-to-one with everyone on yeah. all their promos, all the stories. And then he's also meant to be running a fucking business that's going national at this point. He must not have slept. He said that he didn't sleep. Like, like he would sleep an hour a night, maybe two hours. How did he function? He looked older here in this footage than he does now. Where he's like fucking just drained and Mm. big haggardy fucking five o'clock shadow. He looks like he's fucking about to keel over and die at any point. But there's all these stories about like how... It's not like little things. It was big stuff. Like... We're going to this venue for the show tomorrow. Mm. Where's the check? I sent it in the mail. Did you? Yeah. Did you really? Yeah, no, it's in the mail. What's the tracking number for it? Uh, 4678932. That's one number short. Put a five at the end. That kind of shit. Jesus. The bereavement fairs is one of the scummiest things ever. Oh, it's so slimy. Yeah. I only found out that bereavement fairs existed, though, because of Paul Heyman. So, I mean... Yeah, I didn't know until we watched this documentary. (laughs) I didn't know that was a thing. It's just so you know, folks at home, that if you go through a bereavement, and it's a very quick notice that you have to go across distance, you can get a discount on most major airlines. Yeah, or you could do what Paul Heyman did and just lie, pretend someone died, and then just uh, make up a family member. So, if you want to be a real proper wrestling promoter, just kill all your wrestlers' family. Families yeah. before the weekend. And then they get and to travel cheap. Legitimately. Mm. But there's all these things that like Jericho's talked about in his book about like trying to get Heyman on the phone when he was coming in. 
and he's like ringing up his number and Paul would never answer and then he would answer and he would talk to him and Paul wouldn't say anything and then Paul once he got the gist of the conversation said oh I'm not Paul I'm his roommate um, I'll leave the message for you and get back to you in a day or so and then he'd hang up by himself time Wow, what a skis! <laughs> skis! <laughs> I thought you were meant to say, wow, what a scheme! Like, it was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I think, and constantly you're always hearing stories, ECW, it'll be done by the end of the year. No way it's going to survive. And every time you'd hear a story that it was about to go under, they'd get a little, like, holy shit. Like, they got on pay-per-view. Mm. That's amazing. They got a national TV deal. That's amazing. They got a video game. They got action figures. There was an ECW magazine. All this stuff, when you hear about this chaos, yeah. which you think, no way. How, what the fuck was it like working at ECW magazine? What the fuck was that? What was that building like? Was that- <laughs> I bet it was just a shed. <laughs> Paul Heyman, yeah. like, it's going to be the most extreme magazine you've ever read. Tommy, Tommy, come over here. You're the editor now. <laughs> If you want to wrestle for ECW, you got to give me 5,000 words by Monday. <laughs> there was a common criticism, which was they were too big to be small and too small to be big. Mm. There was demand for ECW. It was, like, the hottest fucking thing. Because when I started watching wrestling in 1998, straight away, the people who introduced me to wrestling were also like, but there's also this, and an ECW cool videotape, guys covered in blood, barbed wire, fire. It spread so much, even before we all had internet, really mm. easy access in these parts of the world. It was an underground phenomenon. So there was always demand. They sold more tickets in their last six months than any point in their previous history. They were always selling more merch, got more exposure. And yet at the same time, they were losing more and more money. Yeah. And by the time they finally brought in business people, it was kind of too late. And pretty much... Paul Heyman bankrupted ECW. Yeah, it's funny because he says in, when he's trying to defend his lies and everything, he's like, you know, I did whatever I had to to keep this company alive. Mm, did you, though? Because you could have hired some uh, I mean, business experts in earlier. His, in his weird mind, he did everything he could do because he wouldn't give up control. He, yeah, he, everything he could do, yeah. sure. Yeah, because he thought he had to do everything. But that's ridiculous. He couldn't defer a lie because, I mean, even when he had other guys running business stuff, at the end of the day, the checks had to be signed by Paul because Paul was the executive producer. He was also the fucking owner and operator. He was the business manager. He was everything. I would say that is the only skill that really he is lacking as a business owner is the ability to delegate yeah really if he'd been able to do that that one thing ecw probably still be around today i think it's something that he has learned since because Mm. even seeing his uh, production company that he has now hearing this the way he goes about his business is very interesting it's a lot of it is delegation and deferring and you know finding the right people and mentoring them is that the one looking for larry looking for larry yeah which just sounds like a weird film starring seth rogan (laughs) looking for larry shrugging on the front corner little (laughs) tiny larry david in the left but um he does things like in that in that production company where he like he has like an open an open evening pretty much like once every month where it's like anyone can come with an idea sit down pitch talk young people come so he can learn about what's happening what's hot that's so really is that just within the company or is that anyone 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 oh anyone 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 so you in. and i could go along and we could go to that meeting we, we, i assume we and could go hang out with paul Heyman and do i don't know whatever it is 
that happens. And replace me with Paul Heyman. We could podcast. give our great idea, which is we want to do How to Wrestling, the TV show, because we think <laughs> new fans need a guide. We could hey, do yeah, that, we? WWE Network, get that fucking shit sorted. I'm serious. Could we do that? Is that a thing that's possible? According to his appearances on Steve Austin's podcast, yes. Well, then that's something we need to look into doing. But honey, I'm not going to lie to you. But Paul Heyman may have lied. Mm. <laughs> he, he has been known to, you know. Mm. <laughs> it's very culty, I think, is a way to describe yes. ECW. The whole, I'm a Paul Heyman guy. These these, these poor men who... Like... Rob Van Damme literally sits down and goes, Well, as a true follower of Paul Heyman, mate, don't call yourself no, a follower. He didn't even say that. He says, as a true follower of Paul, which sounds really like he is one of the, the disciples of Jesus. <laughs> Paul owed people money left and right, and the company died an ugly death. And WWE bought ECW in bankruptcy court, you know? Oh, God. And Paul's really smooth at defending himself. He is. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I think it was a case of mismanagement. Mm. People can go and say, yeah, if you know what, it was too violent, that product never could have worked. Even if you had the, the business people right there... There's no doubt in my mind that if he did have the right business people, because yeah. there was so much demand, it would have at least went on for a bit more. There's obviously still demand to this day. You've got insane championship wrestling, which is yeah. really similar. Absolutely. Oh, doing very well. There's still a demand for that <laughs> style yeah. of wrestling. It Absolutely. literally is just, it wasn't financially viable because he wanted too much. It never would have gotten bigger than WWF, but I think it could have been even the difference between... WWF buying ECW and making Paul Heyman a multi-millionaire as opposed to picking it up in bankruptcy court for less than a million dollars. All the trademarks, all the assets. And really, the bankruptcy of ECW is kind of really is sad in a number of ways because Heyman makes the makes the argument like he wasn't able to leave. It was his money, his savings, his family, his parents put millions into the company. You know? He it really he had more more to lose than anyone else. And he wants to live an off, you know, big money or anything like that. He was barely taking any money to live at all himself. But some things went down in that bankruptcy that's just kind of shitty. Like when the Dudley boys left and went to WWF and he promised them that they owned the copyright on the Dudley boys. And when the Dudley boys left the WWF, turns out actually no Vince owns the copyright to the Dudley Boys. It was sold in bankruptcy court. And, you know, for that and a lot of other people had similar gripes with Heyman where they were told one thing and, you know, lives are, are ruined as a result. Shit like that is not not on. No. That's, that's not cool at all. I mean, at his worst, Heyman, I think, was worse with business than anyone else in wrestling. I can't think of people who, like, one person who's managed to piss off that many people with business stuff other than Heyman in the history of wrestling. When Heyman left the company... He was basically gone at the end. He wasn't around for the last few yeah, months. Yeah, it was really sad. The kind of the wrestlers involved said that he slowly started like appearing less and less. He was less involved. He wouldn't answer his phone. That must have been so scary mm. as as a wrestling talent who hadn't been paid in months. Yeah. Oh uh, shit, what's going on? Because it's not as if they have like a lot of money to be. They're starving at this point. A lot of Probably them. a lot of them living in the back of their cars. Yeah. And a lot of them only found out that the company was gone out of business when Heyman showed up on Raw to be the new commentator. Now, that's kind of shitty. And I mean, they didn't do the kind of excuse which was in bankruptcy court, any checks you write in the previous 90 days, they will get rid of and they'll pull the money back into the creditors. So they said he kept it secret so he could pay guys. Mm, without them having to lose all their money. That, that does make sense. Yeah, but that's fair. There is things as well, though, like around the time when Heyman was disappearing more and more and more at that time, it was like he said he was in Los Angeles to try and get them a new TV deal. And like he ended up 
getting a role in like a movie and he was in a movie in 2001 rollerball he was there as the commentator on that movie and wow. so people were like kind of well, what the fuck were you doing up there he's saying he's getting you know money in hollywood and all of a sudden he's in a movie mm. <laughs> it's like, and then he shows up on raw you can see why people hated Heyman for most of the early 2000s as a result so he comes into the company, WWF, he had an open offer to return because he was on good terms with Vince the whole time, even though he was saying he was a bastard on TV. And quite early on, he gets paired up with, with Brock Lesnar. And it wasn't like a, you and you, you're together. It was him approaching Brock because apparently Brock had been given not so great advice and he was talking and mentoring Brock about how to present himself and how to get over. And then he ends up being, you know, this uh, manager for, for Brock. Best thing that ever happened to either man's career, I think. Yeah. Definitely for Brock Lesnar. I think for Paul, it's made Paul relevant, you know, Mm. forever, pretty much. As long as Brock is there, Paul will be there. But, you know, you don't need... You go back and listen to Hey to Lesnar and we can realise how important Paul was. Yeah. I think without Paul Heyman, Brock never would have gotten over, ever, in a million years. Not anywhere near the same extent, definitely. Could you imagine Brock Lesnar trying to cut a promo on Bill Goldberg in the middle of the ring? Yeah, and it's not a very nice... This feeling that you're feeling, Bill, it's a it's a real feeling that you're feeling. This all-time great feeling. Oh, hooked on a feeling. <laughs> Paul was the head writer of SmackDown. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. And that was so interesting. He refers to SmackDown as being the bitch of yeah. WWE, the B show. And he wanted to make it the show. Yeah. He had the SmackDown 6. He had six wrestlers who he knew were amazing and could put on great matches. And he just basically, for a year or two, any combination of the six, he would join them up. And that's how he wrote his TV. He made sure people like Kurt Angle and Undertaker were made out to be the big, big stars. But at the same time, he made sure he pushed his younger guys. He did a thing. He had Hulk Hogan on his show at the start. Now, can you imagine if you're fucking Heyman having to book Hulk Hogan? What does he do? He does a storyline where young Edge, who's the biggest fan in the world of Hulk Hogan, gets mentored by Hulk Hogan and they win the tag team championships together. Hogan's happy because he's wrestling in this hot feud with these young guys and he's over. Edge fucking gets the rub from Hulk. It's just stuff like that is so so smart, you know? Long-term vision. And I will tell you, there were a lot of times when I was watching wrestling growing up and wrestling was not cool to watch. Mm-hmm. Attitude Era, wrestling was cool. Immediately after Attitude Era, you I would get beaten up on the playground for being a wrestling fan. But 2002, when Heyman was writing SmackDown, all the fucking jocks, all the rugby heads in school were obsessed with it. Not Raw, SmackDown. Amazing. SmackDown had Brock Lesnar and he was a fucking beast, man. Yeah, Brock Lesnar. And SmackDown had Kurt Angle and SmackDown had Undertaker. And that's how he built it. And like... Raw was beaten by SmackDown in the ratings. That was amazing to see. They show this graph of the um, the profits made, and SmackDown is just way above Raw in every sense, like merchandise, people tuning in to watch the Live show, events, everything. Yeah. It's incredible. And he was really taking this thing seriously, this competition. He wanted it to be the best show no matter what. And it's so funny, though, how like far-reaching it is, because people always go on about like, one of a great commentary team is Michael Cole and Taz. Now, if you ever listen to Taz, he's not a great commentator for the most part. Michael Cole has never really been a favourite of yours. Ah, he's fine. Back then, he was not fine. The reason their commentary was so good is that Heyman, to tell the story the way he wanted it, 
would call them back into the office and make them re-record the dialogue to make sure the story was just right. So they would record over their commentary, say this instead, make, make this point, talk about how you'd think that maybe these two don't trust each other, talk about the fire of Ed, talk about how the, the end is near for this guy and so on. That's amazing. Has that ever been done before or since, the re-recording the commentary? They always, I mean, for tape shows, they always bring a guy back in just to kind of try and, you know... To, to, to maybe put in some inserts, but it's rarely to this extent. I thought extent. it was always live. Oh, I mean, for the most part, they will do live. If it's a tape show, they'll do a bit of an edit here and there. In, but they're not to this extent. They've been there for 12 hours. Jesus. And they hated him for it. They hated him. I but bet. people thought the commentary was great and the show was great. So there you go. He said here that diplomatically, he was still a child. <laughs> And this is around the period where Stephanie uh, was Paul's boss and notoriously Stephanie and Paul never got along. Mm. They were constantly at loggerheads. She, their viewpoints on creative were very different because she was head of all creative. Paul was head of Smackdown and the two of them were constantly arguing with each other. And Paul would do things to try and get an upper hand on Raw. Like he would hack phones and like try and listen in on their phone-ins. So he could listen, hear what Raw was going to do that week. So he could beat Raw and do something better on SmackDown. Oh my God. And he was actually suspended once because he was caught on the line for this uh, conference call for the Raw writers. And he had snuck in and they fi- he fell asleep and he was still on the line. And they figured it out. So <laughs> Heyman was a bit greasy Jesus there. Jesus Christ, that is so greasy. Yeah. See, I don't blame Stephanie for hating him at all for shit like that. You imagine trying to be a boss yeah. and then you've got this arrogant, egotistical maniac trying to take over all the time. Who's also a fucking genius as well. Yeah, so that's it must like, be very frustrating. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, because people hate Stephanie, but you really think about it. She had just been made the head of creative and she's Vince's daughter. So she's got a lot to live up to in terms of yeah. expectations. And also as well, yeah, fucking hell, Heyman. Like, I mean, he's impossible to work with. He's just come from owning his own company. No wonder the two of them didn't like each other. Yeah. You know, I don't think it's any one... It's just a bad combination of ingredients there, I think. I do wonder as well if he's ever had a female boss. I think that might be the only time. And she would have been younger than him as well. That's true as well. So, bit of a weird dynamic there for Paul to swallow, I'd say. (laughs) So, he was sent to OVW and they're like, it wasn't a punishment. It was a total punishment. Oh, yeah, it was a punishment. So, OVW was their developmental system at the time. And unlike NXT, which you're a big fan of, Joe, which every week is like, oh, cool, fancy show, passionate crowd, cool events. OVW was basically a warehouse in the middle of nowhere where they would draw less than 100 people, shitty TV show, shitty shows down at the amusement park. It was more like the wrestling road diaries <laughs> than WWE. So he was sent there just to get out of their hair, really, to develop talent. And he did an amazing job at it. Like he sent up loads of guys to the main show, and he like helped cultivate a lot of talent, people like Beth Phoenix, uh, Mr. Kennedy, CM Punk as well. And at the same time, he was doing what he used to do in ECW. He was teaching these people the skills they needed if they wanted them. You know, how to write a show, how to book a show, how to edit the show. He was doing all this with these people. It's really, really cool like yeah. that he was doing that. It was, I think it's quite clever a move of WWE to do that, to be honest. To move him somewhere like that, which would hopefully make him a little bit more modest, but also really 
push on the fact that he is genuinely great at talent development. He he that is a fantastic skill of his. And I think it's funny when people are going, oh, what a demotion. It's like, yeah, when he took over Eastern Championship Wrestling, it wasn't as glamorous as OVW was. And he made apparently like some really great TV yeah. shows. And he wasn't there for very, very long. There for maybe around a year thereabouts. But I think it was like it was cool for him to take a step back from the main show and for him to help, you know, build up the next set of guys. Now, what we had then, unfortunately, was something that was really, really grim and something that will probably warrant its own episode way down the line, which is the relaunch of ECW. They did a little pay-per-view, which is called One Night Stand. It was just like a one-off reunion show. Did huge numbers. So straight away, they're like, okay, let's make a TV show out of this. Dollar signs in their eyes. They own, I mean, they own the intellectual property. They mm. bought it in bankruptcy court. Why not use it? Yeah. The idea was to have it as a show where they could get... New guys over from developmental. Guys could go through ECW. They could put some veterans in there. They could get some ECW guys in there. Everyone will be happy. It was a fucking abomination. It was so bad. They constantly say if it was called anything other than ECW, it would have been a success. Do you think so? Yes. Because you got like people like Seamus. He came up through ECW. Jack Swagger did. Loads of like guys. They did. Kofi Kingston. Hmm. Uh, CM Punk. These are all guys they brought up through there. But because it was ECW, people were just like, nah, this ain't ECW. It was not the same. It was a WWE show. They couldn't do ECW things. It felt like a shameless cash-in, really. Was Paul Heyman involved at all with the relaunch then? Because it seems a bit weird that they took something like ECW, which has such a strong brand. Yeah. And such a successful formula, and then do what the like the opposite of that? It was weird. Paul was the head writer for ECW. Right. But he had to answer to Vince and Stephanie so what would happen is Paul would write the show then they would go to their meeting and Vince and Stephanie and the creative team would basically say no don't do this I wanted you to do this instead and we ended up having them Paul not being able to push the guys he wanted to Vince instead saying no do this and so Paul wasn't have, didn't have any direction even though he was in charge he couldn't do anything really do you think the reason that they didn't go with her, his ideas was because they genuinely didn't think that they'd work? Or do you think it's like stubbornness that like he really pissed them off? It's a bit of both, really. I mean, it's hard to discern one from the other, but I mean, it definitely some of it did seem like spite. Like, mm. it's like, you know, fuck it, you think you're right, now this is how it's gonna, gonna do. But generally, I do think Vince thought that... E- I think they wanted to get different things out of it. I think Vince generally thought ECW was going to there to make a bit of money off the name, get some new guys over. I think Paul thought it was there to maybe get his vision across in this new format because Paul wanted to push like CM Punk. Vince, no, push this other guy instead. Big muscly dude named Lashley. You know, that kind of thing. Right. So it was a case of stubbornness and just also, I don't think there was a clear idea in mind what ECW was going to be. Like when it started off, they said, we're not superstars. ECW has wrestlers. So on WWE.com, you'd have superstars and all the WWE guys would be there. And then there would be the wrestler section and the ECW guys would be there. Then they thought after a week, no, that's not good. So they changed it to be the anarchists of ECW. Ah. And then it was the rebels. Ah. And then it became superstars. And then the first week, no, you'll never see WWE in the bottom left hand of the screen. After the third week, oh, there's WWE. And they shot it differently at the start. You know, they shot it like ECW. The lights were off. The entrance ramp was over there. Then after a few weeks, nah, just make it like Raw and SmackDown. And it just was never going to work. Mm. Paul was miserable. I and bet. I, for me, it was one of the most miserable times in wrestling because I was so excited for ECW to come back because the reunion shows are great. And then you literally have Paul Heyman like in tears on TV saying, like, ECW is dead. 
How you come know? he was allowed to say shit like that? They made him a heel. The, oh, the storyline okay. was that Paul hated ECW and now was ruining the show to spite <laughs> everyone. And all the things you hated about ECW was because of Paul. That's harsh. Oh my God, yeah. Vince. So Vince was like, I don't want Sabu or Sandman in this match. So Paul Heyman's like, there's going to be no Sabu or Sandman here because he doesn't deserve to be. Oh, Poor no. Paul Heyman. That is, I'm sorry, but that is harsh of Vince to like make all these decisions which Paul Heyman didn't even want and was probably fighting against and then be like, and you've got to say it was your idea. You've got to make this brand that you made fantastic and now you've got to make the fans hate you for ruining it. Um, the last thing that Heyman said, he did a little interview for the website and he's literally, his face is covered in tears and he just goes, I'm done and just walks off and he got on a plane and went home. Him and Vince apparently had a falling out on Vince's plane that it was like, like the things they said to each other made it so people were like, you're never going to see Paul Heyman resting ever again. Ever, ever, ever. Wow. And I, I resigned to the fact in 2006, that's it. Like, if I want to see Paul Heyman, I'll look at him ogling at some Playboy playmates on the Heyman hustle, but I'm never going to see him in wrestling again. And he would, like, he wrote a column or two talking about leaving the company, and then that was it, really. He was like, I'm done with wrestling. Burnt out. Don't care about it anymore. Wow. And that really, like, was upsetting to me and a lot of fans because it's like, here's a guy who just... Like, Has shaped the industry. Yeah. And, you know, WWF took so many of his ideas like Attitude Era that is basically them looking going oh ECW yum 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 you know Steve Austin drinking beers in WWF Sandman was drinking beers three years previously in ECW you know a lot of the stuff the gimmicks and angles that got over Steve Austin beating up Santa Claus on TV you can't do that well they did on ECW the year before you know like they were literally taking stuff wholesale from them concepts ideas the style and it is sad that that happened to Paul, that, you know, his ideas were taken, used to elevate a company to the biggest it's ever been, because WF has never been more popular than it was during the Attitude Era. Mm. That's a bitter pill to fucking swallow. Yeah. You know? And then, but then to shit on it, and then make you take the blame, that... That's the real. That's the real the kicker, like you know. And when he left, they actually put up a thing saying, like, a storyline reason. It's like an increasingly disgruntled locker room and sagging ratings have led us to release Paul Heyman from his uh, responsibilities. Wow, mate, it's not his fault that the ratings were bad. You know, it's really, really sad. So six years went by. That's an eternity in wrestling. Like six yeah. years is an absolute eternity in wrestling. He finally returned because Brock needed him back Brock was returning and Brock was like can I have Paul Heyman and Paul's like nah there's no way that's going to happen they won't hire me back and I think they had invested so much money in Lesnar that they were like look we have to kind of do it otherwise it's going to be a waste of money so Heyman comes back six years after the fact linked up with Brock Lesnar and I think pretty much if you look at all the awesome shit Lesnar has done in recent years none of it would have meant anything without Heyman being there conquering the streak beating up John Cena, beating up Randy Orton, beating up Roman Reigns, all the stuff that he did, none of it would have meant diddly-boo if it hadn't been for Paul Heyman hyping it up. We watched him the night after Brock Lesnar conquered the undefeated streak, and he's there literally in front of this whole crowd, relishing in their hatred, going, We told you so! (laughs) Every appearance he made for well over a year, he would remind the audience... That his client, Brock Lesnar, conquered The Undertaker's (laughs) undefeated streak at WrestleMania. And 
people hated it. And it's so rare in wrestling when you've got someone who's that entertaining that people will boo him. Yeah. People will always boo Paul Heyman. He always finds the way to do it to make people go, fuck you, you motherfucker. He was in England once and he lay down in the middle of the ring and he went, guess who I am? No, I'm not your queen dying so Charles can become king finally. I'm the Undertaker losing at WrestleMania. He was paired with CM Punk in this time since he's come back, which was amazing. We'll talk about that when we do Punk's episode, obviously. Not always was it a winning combination. Curtis Axel was managed by Paul Heyman. So I think that might lead us to believe that just having Paul Heyman with someone isn't necessarily a winning formula. Mm. I mean, he was put with Cesaro as well, which you'd think... Like, Cesaro, he's not great on the promos. That's so strange. Yeah. You don't think Cesaro's good at promos? Well, in their minds, he's not. I love Cesaro. I, I think, think he's, he's a great, great promo. Yeah. But Vince has always thought, oh, he's weak at promos. That's literally think, just because he's got an accent. He, pretty he's much. incapable of <laughs> and one time, past that. And one time, Cesaro, when he was given a chance, said, there's no one better in between these four ropes. And you can tell straight away Vince going, there's three ropes, god damn it, you're never talking again. Give me that goddamn microphone. So not everything he's done has turned to gold, but I mean, like, when I ask people for promos to show you, it's very telling that the majority of them, well over 50%, had come from the last two or three years. Yeah. With him doing stuff with Lesnar. Like, even him, when Lesnar lost to Goldberg at Survivor Series, the promo he did, like, oh, the next it's week. amazing. He's cu- he, he makes himself cry yeah. for wrestling, you know? And also, as well, the greatest promo of all time, which I was very happy to show, Joe, which was him getting a little kiss from Ryback. Yay! The ba- and then Ryback going, <laughs> Ryback rules. <laughs> I got a little kiss from my best buddy. Love it. Love it. Paul Heyman, I think, is one of the most entertaining things on the TV show every week. Yeah. If Heyman's there, I'll be watching it. <laughs> An interesting story for Heyman, though. I mean, was this the background you thought the man would have? No, not really. I mean, little bits here and there. I knew he was a savvy business... I say savvy businessman in the, the, the sense that he's able to bring out talent and um, understands what makes a good business, not in the actual day-to-day management yeah. of being, sense of being a businessman. So yeah, there are aspects of that I, I was aware of, but just the the details and the stories, it's just so ludicrous. It sounds like made up bits here and there taken from people's autobiographies that were probably made up, but it's Only not, it's real. Only in wrestling, like, yeah. you know? Only in wrestling could, could this whole thing happen. Yeah, could this person exist? I love seeing, you know, you talked about him being a fan. I love seeing footage of him or stories of him with, like, current people. Like, there's those people who he's taken a lot of interest in and has helped um, mentor Mm. obviously you know Brock and a lot of the younger guys in NXT but like Renee Young Corey Graves are the two people who he's really when Corey Graves like made one of his first appearances Paul like as an announcer Paul was like this man is going to be one of the most important commentators in this business Ah. take it from me and and Renee Young as well he's lauding Renee and Renee's like probably the best interviewer they've had in like 30 years So it's great that he still has that passion, that eye for talent, even though he's got his two phones and he's doing all this stuff for, um, you know, uh, with his production company. And the reason why everyone gets excited about the wrestling game every year, in spite of themselves, myself included, fucking idiot here. Here, I'm on fucking Kotaku giving it like a, don't buy this game, then I buy it the next two years in a row. 
Thanks a lot, Heyman, you motherfucker. So is it his production company that make those ads? Yeah. Like the really good one yeah, that yeah, was yeah. downtown. Fuck me. Yeah, that man knows his shit. Like. He really does. Absolutely. That's he, amazing. He was the guy, the year they did CM Punk on the front cover, he was like, you know what you should do? You should have CM Punk and Steve Austin sit down next to each other and just talk like they're going to have a fight. Which, of course, they're never going to do. Mm. And they just did this video where it's Punk and Austin getting on each other's nerves sitting down and Austin's like you know if this wasn't a video game you know it'd be a difference and it's just everyone it went viral like everyone's like holy shit you see Steve Austin's gonna fight CM Punk no Steve Austin's not gonna fight CM Punk you're gonna buy WWE 13 but he's not gonna fight CM Punk and it's so funny you he, he hear one of those buzzwords like you know we, we, we find a brand we make it global you know make it viral you know send it to the world he knows what he's talking about yeah for so many people it's buzzwords but that man you know if I was doing a marketing campaign I'd fucking look up Paul Heyman. You know? <laughs> Do you know what the really interesting things I think about Paul Heyman is um, how much of a natural leader he is. And that so many of his innate qualities are what people try really hard to do actively yeah. to become better at leadership. Things like he's able to see, not, not just see talent, but able to recognise how one person can benefit another person. And how he can make them both obviously want to then act on that. Like that's a huge part of being Accentuate a good leader. Positives. Being able to see what yeah. someone can bring and then sell that to another person. Go right, you two meet up. That's going to be great. Perfect example of that one of the most famous tag teams in ECW. One of the most over tag teams were a group called the Public Enemy. And Paul put the two of them together, and they never teamed before. They always were opponents. Everywhere they were, they always were infused with each other. He thought, well, you two will be good as a team then. And they were. They were amazing as a team. It's incredible. So, yeah, that's like, that's a look at Paul Heyman, I think. I was really, really interested to see like, your thoughts of his story. There is a greasy elements to it. Oh, yeah. Heyman himself hates talking about the past. Like, <laughs> I wonder why. He, he, absolutely, he says, I always want to be focused on the future. What I've done is done. That's it. So it was interesting to see him go back in the past and actually have a bit of a chat about it. <laughs> I think that Heyman is not the absolute arse that so many people think he is. But I do think it just shows you when you approach things like business and paying people with like a, a fast and loose approach, let's just say, people are going to get hurt and yeah. they're going to hate you for it. But his legacy speaks for itself. Let's check out some of the tweets and Facebook messages you guys have left for hashtag HowToPaulHeyman. And since this show apparently is going to make air this week, I'd like to take this moment to thank you for watching ECW. You have to be an ECW fan to watch this show because God knows the network has never put out one freaking commercial or one press release to let you know that we're here. But that's their scheme of things. You see, in just a few weeks, the network is going to give $100 million to Vince McMahon like he needs it to replace us. In case they haven't thrown us off before then. And the fact of the matter is, we're not a publicly funded company like Vince McMahon or WCW. We survive or even thrive on your support. And for that, we thank you. Now, in an industry where everybody wants to be real and everybody wants to do a shoot, this, my friends, is a shoot. We hate this stinking network. We hate their guts for abandoning us. We hate their guts for not supporting us. We hate their guts for not advertising us. And we hate their guts for not having the balls to throw us off the air. And just in case you're watching this, hey, network, I dare you to throw me off the air. Because I'm going to break every rule that you put in front of me until you throw me the hell off the air. Now this, my friends, is a shoot.
Storm and Norman says, Austin, Taker, Lesnar, Dudley's punk, the best commentator, manager, and true evil genius of wrestling. I think he's my favourite commentator of all time. Him and Jim Ross. They only commentated for less than a year together in WWF. Really? And we met Jay Ormy and Adam. We, we mentioned that to him. I was like, oh, he's so good. And he was like, yeah, he's probably the best I've worked with. Wow. That says a lot. I must admit, yeah, of all the matches we've watched going back, my favourite ones have been commentated by Paul Heyman. Undeadpool says, most underrated commentator, speaking of, yeah. made me proud to be Jewish and a wrestling fan. Awful, awful businessman, <laughs> but what a dreamer. Yeah, seriously. It's true, actually, that ability to have a vision and be able to see what potential there is, not just for your talent, but the industry itself, that is incredible. Yeah, being a visionary doesn't just mean having an idea. You no. know, it means having a series of ideas interlocked. And it's a lot more than just, oh, let's do this one thing. <laughs> and I think no one really deserves that name, Visionary, quite like Paul does. Yeah. Because he made something out of literally nothing. Jenna ACLB says, he's one of those people where the more I learn about him, the less I like him. He's still charismatic, but disappointing. I think if you go further and further back, let's just say... It's a good thing there wasn't Twitter in 1999. Oh, yeah. Can you? And I mean, like, he would do things as well that seem so counterintuitive. Yeah. There's a famous promo, like, they, they hated being on the network that they were on when they got on TV. And Paul thought the best way to address this was by making the network the bad guy on TV. And then literally come out every week and be like, I hate this fucking network! Jesus. You never advertise! The week before ECW got thrown off the air... Paul Heyman literally looked into the camera and said, Hey, Network, in case you're actually watching this week, I dare you to throw me off the air. Wow, what an idiot. They threw him off the air. So <laughs> Because not everything is ran by Vince McMahon, who loves competition. Yeah, not everything has to not... be a wrestling promo. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus. That's the thing. You have to be a wrestling fan for that to work. Yeah. <laughs> ERJ Hunter says... Paul Heyman, great eye for talent, best colour commentator Jim Ross has ever had, fantastic booker, terrible with money. Yeah, I think that's that's that will be one of the fairest assessments of Paul Heyman's tenure in, in, in all of wrestling. That being said, though, can you think of anyone else who's really had like their fingers in every single aspect of wrestling like that? Has been a on-screen personality, has been a manager, you know, has been a commentator, has written the show, has booked the show. The I think fact that he involved himself so heavily in like think backstage stuff like editing, lighting, show management everything it's not incredible. even Vince McMahon like was had that level no. of 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 one to one with talent like it's both to his boon and downfall really i think it shows you can't do everything you can't do everything fully admire the fact that he tried to learn everything but you can't do everything yeah i think the very skills that made him so good at being creative were also the exact same things that made him so bad at being a businessman absolutely yeah <laughs> thinking outside the box when writing a check not a good idea <laughs> yeah just go back to basics all moment there <laughs> Over on Facebook.com slash HowToWrestling, we've had some more long-form comments, really great discussions going on over there. Make sure you do head over to Facebook.com slash HowToWrestling and give us a like. Ben Darth Yoda Dombeck says, it's about the little things, like how he walks in time with the entrance music he's coming out to, adjusting his tie as Brock Lesnar is at the top of the stage, holding out his watch for CM Punk to check, his many, many great reactions from ringside. Not many people would do stuff like that. No. The amount of times where they've cut over to Heyman's face during a Lesnar match and he's just got this devious little smile or the look of concern on his face. Yeah. Can, I think because Brock is so big and scary... I never buy Brock is in danger 
until Heyman is freaking out. Like at Survivor Series, I knew shit was going down because Paul was going, Brock! Brock! I fucking think it's perfect. <laughs> Cody Guest says, I think Paul Heyman can be summed up in this quote from a January 2013 promo. I have lied every day of my stinking life because I am a promoter and that's what promoters do. We lie to survive or simply to get to tomorrow. Whatever answer I had to give in my life to survive on that particular evening, just so I could wake up the next day alive and in and with a business or with a career or with a job. I have lied through my teeth. I have sweared to God. I have lied on the soles of my parents. And I have lied, lied, lied. And I do not regret it because that's what it took to survive. What a fitting epitaph for Paul Heyman. (laughs) Encompassing both the good and the bad, and most definitely the creativity involved in Heyman's career. Well, it has been an absolute joy talking about Paul Heyman. I hope that you've gained somewhat of an appreciation for his life outside of just being the world's best hype man. Do you know what? I think Paul Heyman's a really interesting person to study just from like a personal basis of of how to how to be better at life. Yeah. I know it sounds ridiculous and I'm not saying this is any kind of like endorsement of Paul Heyman as a human, but like there is aspects of his personality which I myself I'm going to strive to be more like. Yeah. Like he's the, the such a good motivator. And the motivation. He, yeah, he brings out the best in everyone he's around. He's he's got an eye for just seeing the connections and not being tunnel visioned. He's able to look at different industries and seeing how they can influence and improve others. That's incredible. There's so many valid skills there, which I want to be better at. God, there's very rarely we end up sort of how to wrestling and you're like, I want to be more like the person we just talked about. I want to be more like him and also a lot less like him as well. <laughs> I don't want to, I want to at least if I get in a position where he's been, I want to be able to pay my employees. Thank you very much. Okay, that's, that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much for listening to this episode of How To Wrestling. And as always, if you are listening on iTunes, SoundCloud, or on Stitcher Radio, make sure you leave a rating or review. Subscribe, go back and check out all of our previous episodes. Of course, you mentioned here How To Steve Austin, How To Brock Lesnar. Definitely really important ones that tie in with today's episode. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at How To Wrestling. Give us a follow, let us know your thoughts on the episode and your thoughts on our upcoming episodes. And Facebook.com forward slash How To Wrestling. Make sure you give us a like. And if you fancy supporting the show we are ever so grateful to everyone who does that both financially and as well via word of mouth telling your friends about the podcast that's always so valuable to us thank you everyone so much for doing that but you can find us on patreon that's patreon.com forward slash how to wrestling we have a variety of tiers to suit any budget for any fan starting from a minimum of one dollar if you just feel like supporting the show and giving something back that's great thank you there's also the five dollar tier which gives you access to our monthly pay-per-view reviews that come out every single month and have been going back since SummerSlam 2015 yeah so there's 16 episodes up there now and as well we've just recently got an RSS feed so if you are a $5 plus backer and you want to add that feed do check your emails that was sent off if you have any problems with that message me directly on Patreon or howtoresting at gmail.com but there is an RSS feed there now which means you get those directly to your device you don't have to go onto the Patreon website to access those and remember $5 per month you can drop out at any time you want to. If you just want to support for one month and get access to all the previous episodes, feel 
feel free to do so. There's zero commitment past your one month that you become a backer. For $10, you get access to our monthly live streams. And if you want to be a $50 backer, you can request an episode of How To Wrestling, a topic for us to study, a topic to introduce to Joe. We've got some really interesting ones coming up along the way. But thank you to all of our backers on Patreon.com so far. You have been absolutely fabulous. And we thank you, each and every one of you, for your patronage. And a big shout out to Russell Kidd for requesting How To Paul Heyman. I always love when people request episodes that I particularly I'm a massive fan of it makes my life so much more easy and so much more enjoyable you're the fucking bomb Russell thanks for your support and our next episode is gonna be a very very special one a very festive one indeed it's gonna be how to Christmas I'm gonna be showing Joe all the great and uh, not so great Christmas moments from wrestling all the way back to yielding times when wrestling and Christmas were first invented <laughs> if there's any fun wrestling memories to do with Christmas fun wrestling moments tweet them in using the hashtag how to Christmas. I'm very excited to show Joe the holly jolly festive side of wrestling and the struggles there have been at times to marry the most joyful time of year with wrestling. It's gonna be, um, well that's gonna do it for this episode of How To Wrestling. It's a goodbye from me, Kevin. And a goodbye from me, Joe. I will see you next time on How To Wrestling where we're gonna be looking at all of our favorite festive memories at How To Christmas. See you next time, folks. See ya.